Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Ty Windish, EAA's assistant editor, and I'm just here today to introduce an interview. As you probably saw and heard, last week we held our Spirit of Aviation Week, which of course could never replace EAA AirVenture Oshkosh 2020, but did offer a beautiful opportunity to let so many passionate EAAers come together and dive deep into some terrific aviation content. The following interview was featured as a video during the Spirit of Aviation Week and features EAA Manager of Partnership Development Kyle Ludwig speaking with Elliot Seguin about his career creating and flying experimental airplanes. The Green Dot crew will be back next time with another original podcast, but for now, please enjoy this engaging conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We have a great guest with us today for this Spirit of Aviation Week segment. I'm Kyle Ludwig coming to you from EAA headquarters in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Today, we have an ultimate EAA -er on the show, someone who has designed, built, and flown his own airplane even. Elliot, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me, Kyle. No problem at all. Elliot, we've seen a lot of your programs and your airplanes on YouTube and through your social media channels, but how did you get into aviation? I grew up in a flying family. Uh, my dad uh, had a Cessna 172 for most of my childhood. And then uh, uh, well, I guess when I was pretty young, before I can remember, he bought a Swift. And we had a Swift growing up. And then, you know, that time frame when you start getting into, well, you get into cars because you want to get into girls. Um, he hot rodded out his Swift. He put a big motor in it and set some world records with it. And uh, anyway, it was the perfect uh, send off to, uh, well, not playing with cars, <laughs> playing with airplanes instead. <laughs> that is awesome. And you've had a great career after uh, growing up in aviation as an engineer and being a part of a lot of special programs in aviation. How did you progress into a professional aviation career? Uh, yeah, so uh, the big thing with my old man, you know, he, he was a pilot, but just for fun. Um, so it was a big thing in the family that for me to even think about making money with aviation, I didn't really have a good model for that. So establishing that model really came down to two guys. One was my uncle Burl, who was an AMP mechanic. Uh, and the other was a guy named Dave Groh, who restored, um, uh, Stearman's and T6s just down the road from the airport where I learned to ride my bicycle at. So, uh, between those two guys, they sort of established that model for how you could, you know, use airplanes to, to make your money rather than just spend it. And uh, that set the, the tra trajectory that led to the rest of it. That is awesome. So Elliot, you have a really cool company name, Wasabi Flight Test or Wasabi Air Racing. How did that name come about? <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, weirdly enough, we were eating sushi, right? Uh, no, but uh, so we, we did come up with the name eating sushi. Uh, we were looking for a name for the, uh, for the race plane. Uh, we had bought a Cassett project that happened to be green, and I was looking for a name that would tie the uh, the color of the airplane to the branding and would also fit well on the side of the airplane, right? There's like that aspect ratio between the, you know, pilot's seat back bulkhead and the front of the horizontal stab and you want to kind of occupy that space as efficiently as possible uh so between that and you know having a lot of vowels meant that it was going to be fun for fun to say this is a really engineering response sorry about that um but uh but that was where we came up with wasabi and uh, unfortunately now we're stuck with it so so tell us a little bit about that company uh yeah so um um uh, 
I think you kind of kind of so uh, I talk about my uncle Burl and uh, and Dave right back in Michigan right and so you sort of like I'm gonna make money with aviation like what does that even look like and you're trying to figure out like how to set that those sites right sort of doing book work I get an engineering degree like how does that all add up to well I end up in in Mojave uh, at scaled right and so quickly that that idea of becoming uh, an engineer on aviation an engineer on airplanes to like like, can you fly them? Like, what does flight test look like? That's like a really like exponential curve, right? We go from like, whoa, can I make money with an airplane to like, oh, wow. Like Mike Melville is like a high school trained, like A&P slash astronaut. Like that is the coolest thing ever. And, and how do you like, like do that? Right. Uh, well, it turns out like other people were coming up with that same uh, uh, thing at the same time. So there was like a handful of us at scaled and really at the Mojave airport that were all sort of competing for like, you know, who was going to, the, the visualization was that uh, somebody was going to have to sit in the right seat of those spaceship flights somewhere between like, yeah, yeah, yeah you know, Melville was going to get the first flight or, you know, or Pete or whatever, but it was going to be some flights before customers were in the right seat or in the back seat. And that seat was going to, you know, somebody was going to get bored and they were going to put someone there and you would have a chance to be an astronaut, you know, supersonic, all reversible flight controls, rocket engine, like everything, you know, flying the world's greatest home build. Uh, so, so creating a, a, a path to make yourself competitive for that, right, in this environment like Mojave, where, you know, for Spaceship One, before Spaceship One, there had been Voyager, Mojave was desolate, there was nobody really there. After Spaceship One, the place got, like, flooded with talent, right? So there's all these guys that are vying for my spot. I want that spot, right? So, you know, I go to work, I work as hard as I can all day, but at the end of the day, there's, like, there's time left at the end of the day. What am I going to do with it? And that's where Wasabi came came down to, right? So whether it was with air racing or, or helping a friend uh, develop a platform or whatever, it's like I can subsidize uh, my flight test activities with a full-time job. And then ideally, I don't have to, like with Wasabi, with the siren, I had to like design the airplane, build the airplane, me and my wife working, you know, basically two full-time jobs to get that thing done. As you move to where you're doing that more and more professionally, like just not having to build the airplane is such a huge benefit, right? independent of like whether or not I get paid or not, right? So if you can use that full-time job to subsidize the back end, that's where Wasabi allows me to, you know, build that resume that hopefully makes me competitive. Remember, you know, the the sort of the end of the um, the the civilian test pilot dream at scale was when they started bringing in more and more military test, trained test pilots, right? Military trained test pilot, right? It's two million bucks to make him a fighter pilot. Then you drop another million to two million on it to make him a test pilot. That's what you're competing with as a civilian, right? So how do you get that experience, right? So if I have to like give away my time, at least I didn't have to build all those airplanes to get the experience. And that's what the, the basis of Wasabi is, right? If I have to you know, make a silly YouTube video or do some engineering or build an airplane, whatever it is to get the flight test experience to build that resume, because that's, uh, first of all, sort of ungettable experience. And second of all, that's what we're passionate about. So, so that's the thing. You're definitely a super passionate guy, right? We've already <laughs> seen it today in this interview, but let's go back to chatting about, you know, an EA hero. Uh, of ours, Burt Rutan and Scaled Composites, and what he really bit out there in Mojave, right? Because as you said, there was nothing out in Mojave until Burt came about in the big scale brush uh, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. What was it like working for Burt and working at Scaled Composites during this wild time of innovation? Yeah, I think um, one of the hardest things about working for Scaled is, number one, like getting used to being around so much talent, right? And having like, uh, when a hard problem pops up, like having to kind of like fight off the other engineer so that you can do it to kind of, like we're talking about, like build a motor on yourself, establish yourself in the community, move yourself forward. Um, the other side is that uh, there's like this, just like we were talking about, like what, you're going to be a commercial astronaut in a home-built rocket, like, like, like that is such like, exponential thinking right and like it's it's a kid coming from michigan right like 
like in Michigan, like, yeah, EAAers, like we're home builders, but most of them were flying certified stuff. Right. And like, yeah, we would fly to Oshkosh every year, but you know, we camp under the wing of a 172 and, and yeah, we would look at long easies, but you had to walk through fields of Cessnas to get there. Right. Like to go from that to the king, the master, right? Like Bert is the, you know, the, 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 the EAA thing, right? To, to work for him and try to get used to that mindset, right? Uh, one of the big things that jumped out at me early on was like, you know, obviously, he, you know, terribly talented engineer. Um, and, and, and yeah, he could lead people, but there was this other thing, this thing like leading people. And I think leading people, it's like, you know, the guy in the front with a podium and he's like, he's like walking through our goals for the day or whatever, like, like that sort of micro level. The thing with Bert was that, you know, with the, the hair and then those big blue eyes. Right. And like, you know, he didn't, he had to say three sentences in the whole room. Like we're going like, we're, I don't know where we're going, but those eyes are taking me. We're going there. Right. And to try to like temper that as an engineer with like, well, yeah, but like, there's going to be like nuts and bolts and like a thing needs to be built and it needs to like be strong, like all those like real hard practical problems that, that fall behind the, the dream that got us here that moved me from Michigan all the way to California. And I'm living in a hut next to the airport and I'm dedicating every dollar I have to building silly little airplanes. Right. Like, so trying to get like, Something that seems like practicality out of that uh, was uh, uh, a lot of the struggle with figuring out how to work at scale, but absolutely some of the most rewarding time uh, in my professional career. So Bert, has done, you've done a lot of what Bert's done, actually, which is design, build, and fly your own airplanes. Let's talk about the siren for a second. How did the idea come about? How did you move from the cast that you talked about earlier and why Wasabi's name what it is to the siren and racing it at Reno and then eventually flying it nonstop? from Mojave to Oshkosh. I mean, how does all that progress uh, for you? I'm flattered you know about all that stuff. Um, uh, yeah, so so basically, uh, you look at the formula class, right? Um, Reno is its own thing, but it's really dominated by sort of a pilot personality, like wanting to prove oneself as a stick and rudder guy. Uh, of all the stuff that happens there, the most of the engineering mindset would be in the formula class, especially the sort of prototyper mindset that we're talking about with Bert. So if you're looking for a way to kind of um, grow that skill set, that Formula One rule book almost ends up being like a, a specification diagram, right? Or, you know, like, what do we need in the world's next F-22 or F-15? Like, it's the same thing, but it's even sort of a level deeper where it, it goes beyond rules and into like how you would want to do your welds and like the, the first pass on how you would do engineering. So, you know, again, 10,000 foot view, I'm in Mojave. I see myself as the next, you know, commercial astronaut riding a rocket. I need to figure out a way to put myself ahead of, you know, my peers. I'm like, well, I can take this cassette, right? And I can rebuild every single part of it, which is what the, most of the formula guys do. Most of they tend to be pilots. They're sort of swapping wings and cowlings and engines and yada, yada. And by the time you're done, you know, fast forward four years, five years, you will have built every part of that airplane, right? Or we can just push the cast into the other corner of the hangar and start from scratch and do it all at once. And now we can check off all these professional goals that I'm trying to go to trying to click through in order to do the rest of the things I want to do with my life, assuming that it wasn't going to be air racing was where I was going to make my career. So Wasabi started as a, a direct path to Elliot in the, in the seat for the first flight. Fundamentally, if I own the airplane, design the airplane, et cetera, I get to decide who sits in that seat and it's going to be me, right? So I'm trading 2,000 hours or whatever it ended up being, you know, two and a half, almost three years of Jennifer and I working 40 hours a week for one flight, right? And you know, call it the first 10 hours or whatever it is. That was the trade-off. Uh, so uh, the great thing about the formula class, like I said, is you have sort of a rule book. You have a, a very well-defined problem. So like, you know, like Melmoth is a great example, right? It's a, you know, 
interesting home build, but he spent a whole bunch of time in the beginning deciding, like, I'm going to fly nonstop from, I think it was L.A. to Tokyo or L.A. Like, he has to create a mission, right? How many people are going to sit in it? What, what stall speed do I care about? All that stuff's off the table with a Formula One design, right? So that gave me a great starting point. The other side was that uh, at the time I was crewing for John Sharp, you know, Team Nemesis, one of the best, you know, whatever, you know, right there with John or with uh, Burt Rattan as far as being established in the industry. So I had a great ear to pull on, right? Um, so between being able to go to work and pull on the ears at work and pull on John's ear about that stuff, I had a lot of resources to play with and it gave me a really clear path. The last thing is you want to have, not only do you want to have a clear place to start on your project, but you want to have a clear endpoint, right? Um, there's a lot of projects that, well, most projects just end up sitting in the back of a garage for, you know, many years, et cetera. But even when they're done, like, when are they done, right? Is it, is it when I get to put that 500-hour sticker on it at Oshkosh? Is it, is it when I put the 1,000-hour sticker on it? Is it when I just get it to Oshkosh, right? What, what is the final establishment of I have finished my, my project? So the fact that I could build a thing and then put it on the race course. Boom, that's a milestone. Done. We could walk away right then, right? Oh, I, you know, I made it to the top of the silver. Oh, well, here we go. Milestone. I won a race. Wow, right? Or I made it in the gold, right? You could, you have these clear things that you could mark off and every one of them is another resume point to build this career, right? So, uh just like you were talking about setting a world record, like setting a world record is a, a hard thing. Well, not if you set it point to point. Well, point to point records are kind of boring. Well, what if we made it like really weird where we take an airplane that's designed to fly like, you know, 8 miles at a time? And instead, we fly all the way from you know California to, to Oshkosh, and we do it as a flight of eight airplanes, or you know we take off at three o'clock in the morning, land during the air show, like all that cool stuff. Again, it's about creating these moments that al allow you to have things to point back to on a resume to build a career to try to put something together. Because remember, this is this is impossible stuff, right? We're talking we talked about Bert, we talked about Sharp, right? These are two out of how many EA members are there, right? There are a lot of people trying to do this because it's so cool. It's a hard thing. The more you can plan it out, the more you can think about the problem ahead of time, uh, you know, being a dorky engineer, maybe the better chance you have of, uh, of being productive with the whole thing. Am I rambling yet? No, this is awesome. <laughs> Absolutely awesome stuff. And we love the enthusiasm. And I think that's what separates, as you said, the 240,000 EA members, right? And their passion, their enthusiasm. Let's talk for a second about an airplane that's been a big deal the past couple of years. So a twin engine quickie uh, in itself would be an amazing machine, right? I mean, <laughs> the quickie itself is a cool airplane uh, and it personifies a lot about what EA is and what Bird is and what, you know, uh, composite airplanes have been over the decades. But then well you guys said. decided, well you, you, thank you, you guys have decided to bolt on a couple turbine engines and being a big modeler, you know, it's awesome to see them being about that size, right? Tell us about how that idea even came about and why did you decide to do it and, and kind of about being with that program? Because we all know what happened, of course, but what happened with that program? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, so so we all know what happened. If you ha you've seen the video, I assume that did pretty well on YouTube. We didn't have any control of it. It went whatever. People did stuff with it. There's a report. If you haven't read the report, our internal report as well as the NTSB report, look into it. I think there's a lot of good technical detail in there, but sort of a across the top uh, view of what happened there. Again, we're in Mojave, right? Uh, at this time in Mojave, there was a there was a lot of people getting pulled out of hangars and stuff. There was a lot of turnover. Some of the old sort of hangar rats, desert rats, guys were kind of getting turned around. And I made it a point to keep track of what was in each hangar. I want to know what was going on at the airport. It was very valuable to me. I, you know, again, we make the effort to come all the way out to Mojave. I want to know what's going on, right? Well, I found a quickie in one of the hangars, right? And so I kind of knew it was there. It was hanging up in the top of of, uh, of the hangar. It wasn't on the ground. And so I kind of kept an eye on it. Well, it turned out the owner was uh, was maybe uh, um, ready to part with it. He, you know, he had he he done most of what he wanted to do with it. Uh, the joke has always been that he, I found it in the dumpster. Well, it wasn't 
in the dumpster. It may have been on its way to the dumpster. It certainly wasn't going to fly anytime soon. So uh, I, at the time, I had a horde of hangers, and I purposely kept those hangers stocked with projects that I was kind of trying to find a buyer for, a motor for, you know, whatever, money, whatever we were trying to do. So I grabbed the quickie off the roof, wheeled it over, and stuck it in a hanger. And it sat there for you know a year or something like that. My plan had been to make it electric. I was really passionate about the quickie as a, a really clean airframe. Right? Oh, I don't need to tell you this. You sort of said it yourself. The, the air, It's a super efficient airframe. It's a super small airframe. It's interesting as an EAA or as a rattan guy, right? But also, as if you're going to put a new platform, a new uh, engine on a new power plant, because it's so small, because it's so uh, low drag, right? It, you, it maybe opens up some other opportunities. So in the case of electric, I thought it was exciting. We were pitching it to electric customers and not getting anywhere. Uh, fundamentally, what it comes down to is you're going to wear the batteries out uh, in the program, and the batteries are the most expensive part of the program. So you can't really convince an investor they're going to be able to take their parts back and run uh, after the whole thing's over when you're dealing with electric, because you're going to you're going to uh, damage the batteries anyway. So just was sitting there. We were approached by a, a turbine engine company that wanted to put a turboprop on the siren. They wanted to put um, big power on the, on, the, on the siren or they wanted to build another siren or whatever. I was very busy at the time with, with just campaigning uh, the siren. And then we were trying to do some stuff with the, the Lancers. So it was a, it was a lot to take on building a whole nother airplane, yada, yada, yada. Uh, anyway, so I just did what I always do, which I just take everybody through all the hangers and say, okay, here's kind of what I'm thinking here. We have this platform. We have this. And, and we walked into the, the hangar and the guy was like, what is this? He'd never seen the quickie before. Fine. Well, I got back in his truck and sitting in between the two seats was a model airplane turbine from the same company, right? Same form function of what ended up going on the airplane. And I was like, can you get these? Anyway, so what it ended up was he wanted uh, a platform to demonstrate this new turbine motor. Wow, okay. You know, this is the whole thing with, with uh, EAAers, right? You, you, have, you have the airframe, but you don't have the motor. Or you have the motor, but you don't have the avionics, right? You're getting all those pieces together. We just, like, right there in that moment, we suddenly had all these pieces. Uh, the idea was to get the airplane flying just barely like a flight or two, and then we would take it to Oshkosh. So we would time everything to just, just get it done, get a little media spike, and then take it to Oshkosh. We were right about a month later, two months later, just as the motors were showing up, we were approached by Red Bull. Red Bull wanted to do a documentary about something that was going on in Mojave. But unfortunately, they wanted to run in like the March-April timeframe, so a few months early of what we were planning to do at Oshkosh. So I showed them a bunch of stuff, and I said, here's the quickie thing. It's coming, but I, you, you know, you can't have it. It's not, it's not up for grabs. Anyway, so they got super excited. The turbine uh, company, they all, we all started talking. We said, maybe we can do this where we'll do like a double spike, where we'll do a push to fly. They can document it for the reality show thing they want to do. And then we can take the same platform to Oshkosh. The nice thing for me was you would end up at Oshkosh with a more mature platform, right? Rather than showing up with what basically would be a model that had flown, right? Maybe we could put enough time on the airplane between those two dates and we could actually show up and maybe we could put on a demonstration, right? At that time, uh, Paul Dye was flying a BD-5. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, there's the subsonics was out there flying. I was like, man, what if we put three micro turbines up? Like, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be, cause it's such an easy thing to get passionate about, right? The, the mini turbine thing, right? It's just like, it, it clicks all the EAA buttons. It fits in so well, the EAA thing. Anyway. So, uh, that was what, that was the basic setup that led to not only us putting the jet motors on the quickie, but also the accelerated timeline that sort of moved everything left, which you know led to you know, how everything played out. But, but yeah, did that did answer the question? That absolutely answered the question. And that airplane is still one of the coolest things we've seen in the past couple of years, right? Because as you said, it's like pure EA, small right. jets, composite, totally out of the box, awesome stuff, right? Right, right. And I, I, uh, um, 
I still, when I look back on the stuff that we did and how quickly we did it, um, it's, it, it encapsulates the EAA thing and the, and the Mojave thing and the scale thing. It was just such a great moment to have such enough smart people around and the pieces to come together to get to do something like that and how fortunate we are that it got documented because you know the, the, the end result uh, could have been better, but I think a lot of people saw it. And I think uh, certainly in the context of EAA and showing people that you could do cool stuff with airplanes, I think it still carries a lot of value and I think we're proud of it for that reason. That's awesome. And for those of you that turn in late, we are talking with Elliot Seguin, you know, known around the world for what he's done in the experimental world, especially out in Mojave. Let's go back from experimentals to the certified world really quick. You talked about all the folks in Michigan when you're growing up owning, you know, certified uh, spam can Cessnas things uh, <laughs> of that nature. Now we just talked about a turbine powered, a twin turbine powered quickie, which is like one of the coolest things we've seen out there lately. But let's talk about your time with Mooney. And what you've done in the experimental flight test world and working for BERT and how wild that was to going back to a certified type program and trying to, you know, flight test an airplane that was going to be brought to the market. Compare and contrast those two different things, experimental world, the certified world and a new airplane and a, a new program. Compare and contrast that for us a bit. Yeah, I think, and I tried to allude to it before. Uh, so thanks for giving me the opportunity to kind of fill in the blanks here. I, I think there's a thing that happens um, when you're a young guy. Uh, got dragged across the country to this like uh, mecca, right? And you're around the words, you know, big rocket, first commercial, right? These big things, you know, the trophy is in the in the lobby as you walk in. Uh, there's confidence that comes from that. And the confidence is twofold, right? You have to be confident. This is a very hard thing we're doing. You're not going to get to the other side of it if you're not you know, believing in yourself and pushing, et cetera. But the other side is that like, there's also just no one else doing this, right? So you don't have like any like, there's, there's, it's not like, you know, we always say that SR-71 is the world's fastest airplane. Well, show me another airplane that was designed to that spec, right? Show me the, the other people that are going for the first commercial, you know, all reversible flight controls, you know, hybrid rocket power. Like, there's, there was, we're the only players in the game, right? And so the big thing that struck me immediately when I got to Mooney was that um, uh, Part 23, uh, two to three-seat airplane is a hard problem. It's a hard problem, and there are a lot of smart people that have been there, right? And in some ways, that made me appreciate, wow, like the, the Mooney legacy, right? And what they were, you know, I think it was like 10 a month or something at peak production. Like silly, silly how, how uh, profitable, how, uh, you know, productive they were as a company, right? So it's fascinating to see on that end. But on the other end, to see um, um, how well Bert has been able to isolate himself from any of that kind of competition, right? Give me an example where Bert went head to head with somebody else in the exact same territory. And yeah, you could say, you know, uh, I've, I've heard engineers or other aerospace people say, well, that's, you know, that's a shows that he's weak. I think it shows that he's strong, right? He was able to go out there and find the, all the things we're talking about, the motor company, the customer, the, you know, the play, place to play, the mission, all that stuff and put together to allow you to have an airplane like Proteus exist, right? Like the thing, right. the fact that that exists is phenomenal, right? And all that it takes, all the dominoes that have to get lined up to make that happen. Happen. phenomenal but at the same time the fact that you know mooney was able to build whatever it is thousands and thousands and thousands of this four seat all retractable you know johnson bar gear thing that that was the solution that the market responded to equally awesome right and so in the case of the r d program that we were running out of chino right you had a situation where you had uh, an engineering team that hadn't worked together before you had foreign investment you had a new facility that hadn't worked together we were brought in relatively late in the game as a flight test team and trying recognizing that you know these are all the same problems had a scale right getting smart people to talk together is hard right solving hard technical problems hard right and the same thing you see in there at mooney so so we had sort of both sides of the coin at mooney where at chino we had the new facility 
new team, yada, yada. But then we, you know, you jump on a plane, you go to Kerrville and we do production tests on the M20s in Kerrville. And you're like, wow, that, I mean, these roots are deep, right? Like, like they were basically tire marks, the width of a standard M20 gear that like went all over that facility because so many had rolled through there, right? So yeah, I mean, as an experimenter guy, as an EAA guy, it's really easy for us uh, to get, get wound up in like, you know, a long easy is faster than a Cessna 172. And, you know, a, a glass air is, you know, got you know, high, better cruise performance. Yeah, well, it was designed to a different spec. And that doesn't mean that the Mooney guys aren't freaking super smart or the Cessna guys, or the Piper guys. And meanwhile, the glass air guys are smart too. And Bert's ability to design long easy, totally awesome. At the end of the day, we're fortunate that the passion that is experimental aviation, that is EAA, brings out smart people that are willing to dedicate all this time, right, to solving these tough problems. So we end up with these cool machines. <laughs> So you're doing something totally different now, and it's not all revolving around the airplane or the platform, right? You're working uh, for a company. Tell us about what you're doing now. Some folks might not know. Right. So uh, Sanders Aeronautics is uh, – I learned about them growing up in Michigan because of Dreadnought. Dreadnought's you know, the, the biggest, scariest thing that runs at Reno in the Unlimited class. It's a Sea Fury with a 28-cylinder 4360 on the front of it, right? So it's uh, basically running like uh, the – book numbers to make 3,500 horsepower or something like that and then win in Reno at those rates. So, so from that perspective, right, as an EAA, or I'm like, oh, okay, that's the Warbird guys, right? And we go to Oshkosh, we see the Warbird. It's like, you know, they got their own little area, right? And it's different than the home builder guys, right? It's different than the spam can guys. The most fundamental thing that happened when I met Dennis, uh, you know, 15 years ago, was I realized that when Dennis got involved, Dennis Sanders, the founder of the company, or the owner of the company, when Dennis got involved with with Warbirds, they were like home builds. This was a thing that, yeah, you could get a Mustang for 1500 bucks, but it needed a lot, right? In the case of the Sea Fury, it's got these weird pneumatic brakes with a hand lever on the stick, right? So, so they were taking F-106 wheels and F-102 axles and the brake system off of this, put it on there. Well, then you're running this Centaurus motor, which is this British sleeve valve thing, sleeve valve engine. Totally awesome. Awesome as an engineer, but if you're a home, you know, home builder type guy down in Chino, California, I'm not going to get those parts. Well, I can get Pratt Whitney's all day long. So Dennis and his family figured out how to put the American motors on it, the 3350, the 2800, and eventually the 4360, right? So again, that's that home building thing that lines up for me very directly to uh, obviously the Reno side of it, but also just you know people trying to figure out how to do hard things with, with machines, in this case, flying machines, and very much in the context of EAA. So uh, that's what Sanders is. Sanders is an outfit that does Warbird restoration. Historically, they were modified uh, Warbirds, mostly for racing, also for sort of taking the British, the strange British engines out, putting the American motors in. But the side of business that I work on is the the smoke generator. So, so going back uh, almost 50 years now, Sanders started making a smoke pod that looks just like a Sidewinder missile, but goes on the tip rails of an F-16. And you can take that to an air show and you can basically be an air show plane on Sunday and then you can be a you know war fighter on Monday. Just take off the smoke winder, put on a Sidewinder and go shoot the bad guys. They built almost like it's like 800 of these things over the last 50 years. They're all over the world. We don't see them in the U.S. because in the U.S. we can afford to have the Thunderbirds where, yeah, they'll argue this, but you basically take an F-16, you take everything that's valuable out of that as a weapon and replace it with smoke oil, right? In this case, if you're a small Air Force, you can't afford to kill an F-16 to have an airshow plane, and that's where the smoke winder comes in. So anyway, so again, we have this weird blend between a, a home-building company, right, because they're scratch-building Sea Furies, right? So they're definitely like prototype mentality, but also they're doing production generator. We're going to build 
Uh, last year we built 30 generators, 30 smoke winders went out of that, that door, right? You have to have things stabilized. You have to have things uh, documented, quality control. And then lastly, you have to work with the flight test teams overseas, right? So working with a, a foreign test pilot on a government paycheck who's burning government gas to deal with some problem that we're having with our smoke generators, that absolutely falls back all the way back to what happened at Scale and what happened at Mooney, et cetera. And then we're also, of course, doing flight tests on the generators there at Sanders. So uh, it's a, it's not maybe a, the most direct move, but it's absolutely direct. And any day you get to play with a C-Fury is a good day. But let's hit on that really quick, because I think that's one of the coolest parts. Yeah, we've all seen the Belgian F-16 with the smoke winders on it, and all the other air forces around the world use these things. And it's cool. It's super rad. You can see the vortices and everything. But there's nothing like strapping them on a C-Fury and seeing the vortices come <laughs> off a C-Fury. What's it like to bolt these things up to Dreadnought or the other test C-Furies and, and watch it come roaring down the runway at you, blaring smoke and the huge vortices coming off? What's that like to experience? It's awesome. Yeah, no, awesome is, is just right. And I think it's not until, you, you just like you say, right? You see the Belgian demo, the F-16 looks fantastic, right? 30 degrees alpha and those, those uh, vapes coming off, like totally awesome. But it's not to really till you come to Sanders, to Ione. We open up the aerobatic box, right? Dennis gets in 924, his dad's Sea Fury. We put the tip smoke on it and he does his low altitude routine, which includes 150 knot pass right by the show, you know, 20, 50 feet from you because the aerobatic box is open. You have a little bit more room to play that you realize that air show, Frank, Dennis's dad, wanting to do that air show, created the smoke winder, which created the smoke, the smoke system that we're seeing overseas. This comes from a guy that just finished building the totally cool C3 and wants to show it to his buddies. And that's something I can relate to, right? That's that's the core uh, thing about the Sanders smoke winder. So you jump in a lot of different airplanes and fly them. We've seen videos lately, you flying a replica uh, smaller Mustang, the Bowers Pony, you've flown the Twerp, you've flown the Siren. What's been the favorite airplane that you've jumped in and, and flown and, and actually got behind and flown? Um, yeah, so uh, for me, I try to think about it more as like a mission or a single flight. Uh, it turns out if you get too attached to the airplane, it gets too hard to walk away at the end of the program, which when you get in the test stuff can actually be dangerous, right? You, you, it makes it too hard to say no to a program you don't want to do or you shouldn't be doing, I should say. Uh, anyway, so uh, as far as like flying experiences, uh, you mentioned probably the top one, right? My wife and I designed and built an airplane, raced it at Reno, and then we flew it nonstop with some of my best buds from California all the way to Oshkosh and got you know a hero's response when we landed there. That that is phenomenal, right? That is that is the arc of an EAA or right. I mean, you can draw a lot of stuff around that. Absolutely fantastic. Um, Probably next on that list was uh, we did some record setting in uh, Mojave. So we set up a, a Mojave experimental uh, fly-in, but there was also records. We invite everybody to come out. We could share costs associated with getting the FAA restrict, uh, waivers and bringing the NAA out to, to cordon off the record. Uh, as part of that, I had the opportunity to set a three-kilometer record. So on that day, uh, my wife was fl flower bombing out of a tri-pacer on a course that we had set up inside the Class Delta at Mojave. We had the, the arrivals coming going for all the people that were coming for the show the following day. I had set a time-to-climb record that morning, and then I set a three-kilometer record that night. I'm diving out of, uh, out of altitudes. You get to dive into your first pass of your three-kilometer record, right? So for the first pass, I'm diving onto the course. Because we laid it out in the middle of the desert, it was helped with the waivers. We laid out in the middle of the desert. You're screaming in from, you know, like 4,000 feet AGL. It's kind of hard to see the course. So there's cool justification. I said, well, we need to put cars on the course to map it out, you know, so it's for safety so I can find it. What it meant is we could put 
news media there, which was the great thing for the experiment of flying, but I could also put my buddies down there. So I'm screaming in literally the coolest thing I've ever done, right? I've got stupid kamikaze power on the motor, right? We're, we're screaming through VNE, published VNE. We're going super fast. I'm going to have a chance of setting a three kilometer record, which is a lifetime goal. Like, you know, little boy listening to Reno on record, right? What Lyle Shelton set a three kilometer record. What is a three kilometer record, right? Here's that moment. I'm diving into the course and I'm diving it's a little crazy when you think about it. at my wife, she's, she's marking the course standing on the hood of her car, right? Freaking so cool. Right. And I, I, uh, I didn't deserve it. I, you know, I'd be lucky to have any moment that cool ever again. Uh, and it's important to, to remember how, how fleeting these things are, but, uh, that was, that was totally awesome. Right. So you had a, an airplane, you know, published BNE was 300, uh, not syndicated. We hit that first trap at, uh, uh, just over 400 miles an hour statute. So, uh, cause the first pass you can dive into it anyway. So faster than I'd ever gone in the, in the airplane before, uh, more power on the airplane than we'd ever run. The engine was unhappy and bucking and barely made it through the record attempt. Uh, totally awesome experience. I was fortunate to have it in some of the best flying I got to do. And that all happened at Mojave. So a lot of us, you know, were sad that Oshkosh isn't happening this week. Uh, a lot of us compare, you know, some of the wonderful things of Oshkosh to the Mojave experimental fly and talk about that flying a little bit. Cause a lot of people haven't been, but they should go. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was, a. uh, it, it's, I don't know that it's really going on anymore. It was a temporary thing. Uh, it started out where, um, scale needed to staff up for the straddle launch program, right? We're going to build the world's largest airplane. We're going to need the world's biggest engineering staff. Right. And since, uh, scaled had was, famous for having unusual engineers. The thought was you couldn't find engineers the way that you would always found engineers. So we needed a different solution to that problem. The thought was if we had a, uh, basically a recruiting day, uh, we could attract the talent to come to Mojave. And that might be a little more honest, right? So they kind of know what they're getting into, if that makes any sense. Well, it turns out that that's like really hard, right? If you're going to put a scale banner over an event, like how many porta potties you have suddenly becomes really freaking important, right? Because now if there weren't enough porta potties, it's like a you know, national event. Scale didn't provide enough porta potties is terrifying, right? The amount of time it's like Oshkosh. Thinking- it's, it's like, like gosh, right? gosh. who would want to have a nightmare? Who wants to deal with that, right? So the, one of my favorite reviews of the Mojave uh, fly-in was that it, it looked like it had been set up by engineers. So basically what we did was we just took scale off the letterhead and a bunch of us were like, just calling our friends like, hey, you got a cool airplane. You want to like come by? Like we picked a day. And then like, because it was a bunch of engineers, like there wasn't really good like food. There was like, there weren't enough porta-potties. There weren't enough like water to drink. All that. But the airplanes were phenomenal, right? And the next thing that happened was you got all these like super smart dudes, wicked cool airplanes. But again, like, you know, I, I don't need to tell you about EAAs, but there's a lot of EAAs that are awesome at what they do because they can go in a basement and be by themselves for, for, you know, for two weeks or whatever. And that guy, even if he's standing next to that awesome airplane and you're standing right next to him, you may not know that that's the guy. So the question, the next question was, how do we get him talking, right? So, so the following year, we added this uh, awards thing where we would have uh, a, a team of judges go around and talk to some of the, the guys that had brought in some new stuff, get them to talk about it. They would rate it and then we would give them trophies. Yeah, trophies, whatever trophies, but it got the guys talking, right? And what, then we started noticing all these people following the guys around, right? As they're talking about, right? Again, it starts to open the experience up. Again, for us tor- uh, dorky engineer guys, the, the one of the comments had been that, you know, if you want to get uh, recognition at, at Oshkosh, you need a really cool paint job and great avionics. And the thing about Mojave flying was that wasn't even on the cards. Like, did you make your own supercharger? Then we're going to have something to talk about, right? Did you make your own landing gear? Like, I want to hear that story, right? Uh, and so that was that was where it sort of started with the uh, the flying. As it grew, uh, we added uh, we talked about the awards banquet, and then we added the the record setting. There was a flower bombing component because there was a lot of guys playing with like like light airplanes. They could do that in the morning of like the Friday before. But again, it really was sort of homegrown and allowed uh, Mojave to sort of showcase. 
one of the interesting things about Mojave is that because of some of the spooky stuff that goes on there, you can't, they can't be an open door place, right? You combine that with the fact that it's pretty desolate being an open door place, like having someone sit there ready to like take $5 for a ticket and sell, sell you a Mojave t-shirt. That's a bad business idea because not enough people are going to come through. Right. So as a result, if you show up, if you know, you as a fanboy show up and you see this when you're based at the airport, you see the fanboy drive up to the gate and like get out of their car and like walk up to the gate and like, like look around, like, like, I know this is the cool place where the cool stuff happens, but how do I see it? Right. So the idea was that uh, independent of what scales needs were, as a culture, right, as the culture of Mojave, if we could just pick a day where we're all going to be like a little more open, right? And then if you're going to invite someone up, they come up on that day and they're at least not, it's not a weird, cold, desolate thing, right? There's people around, stuff going on and, you know, hot dogs or, you know, whatever, uh, that maybe that as a community, you could kind of pull together. So that was what we were playing with. And it was amazing, phenomenal experience. I have no interest in uh, you know, doing events, but there were some, some things within that about just having a bunch of the right people around, right? Just like Oshkosh, right? Where you just, you just, good stuff happens. And, uh, and, and you know, independent, I don't, I don't know, part of potty guy or deciding whether we're gonna have funnel cakes or corn dogs. I don't want anything to do with any of that stuff, right? But uh, that was pretty awesome. And it, certainly we talk about things we're gonna miss about Oshkosh this year, that's on my list. Absolutely. There's probably a lot of folks watching today, Elliot, that say, wow, I'm getting ready to flight test my RV, my Sonics, my Long Easy, I mean, whatever the home-built airplane is. You've done a lot of flight testing. What advice would you have for them and the seriousness of it and how to really start with your cards and your test program and that? What advice would you share with those that might be getting ready to do what you do for a living out there with their own airplane? Yeah, that's a uh, that's a great question. I think um, there's the obvious stuff. I mean, there's no shortage of documentation out there. Obviously, the new EAA manual is fantastic, uh, all that great stuff. But as far as something you can take away today, uh, I have to quote uh, Doug Shane. He had a quote. He said, uh, when your best friend comes up to you, he says, he just finished his airplane. And he's ready to go do his first flight. What's the best thing you can do? And he said, the best thing you can do is take his keys. And what the take your keys does is it gives you, you know, call it a month, but, but there's that push, right? I mean, you've been, you know, your wife's nagging you and you're late on the hangar rent. And finally, you can afford the avionics package. Go, go, go. The DAR is going to be here. Are you going to be ready? Does he want the airplane open? Does he want it closed? Did we taxi it? Didn't we taxi it? Did we do the weight and balance enough? Big, big, big push, right? You want to make sure that you're ready for that next jump, right? Um, what I love about EAA, uh, it, the experience, right? Is you say, um, I've never built an airplane before. And uh, Vans sends you a kit and it, you, know, you mash your first rivet. And if you didn't do it right, you, f- you, know, you read the book again and you cut, drill it out and put in another one, right? Oh, I don't know how to terminate a wire, right? So you terminate a wire, oh, that one doesn't look good. You look at the book, you figure it out. There's so many little tiny skills. How do you run a schedule? How do you run a budget? You know, how do you, you Register the airplane. What is a DAR? What's a notary public to get you to sign off the paperwork? You know, all those little things they have to work through. The, this is no different than any of those other ones. The first flight is no different than any other ones. The difference is the risk. There's a spike in risk. There's an avalanche moment, a cliff moment in terms of exposure, both to you, to the project, to your family, to the airport. And so it's important to prepare yourself for it. All those things are doable. That most likely there's an airplane on the planet like your airplane. You can go fly it. You'll hang out with that guy. You can fly something that's you know, a little bit quicker, a little bit slower, right? Sit down with somebody who knows more than you do. Take your time. No rush. No rush, right? You can prepare for it, right? Uh, uh, but but give yourself uh, that time because there's, like I said, there's that building and building and building and the pace keeps picking up and I'm going to do the flight because I want to make it to Oshkosh. You're not going to make it to Oshkosh. I'm sorry. It's canceled anyway. You're not going to make it. Take your time. Yeah, we've 
we've given them an extra year now, right? They can get that. They, they're not missing an Oshkosh, right? They're no not missing Oshkosh this week. Uh, uh, they have another year to go for that, right? So Exactly. But, but yeah, just like any other EAA thing, you can prepare yourself. You can get there. No matter – I mean, even we're talking about F4 Phantom. You can get there. Whether or not it's worth the effort, whether or not, you know, your wife's going to put up with all the baloney associated with it, I don't know. But you can get there. Just give yourself the chance. So that, that would be my – my recommendation. So for, for maybe the young people watching today that are looking at this saying, wow, this is exactly what I want to do. I've always dreamed of being, you know, like we talked about earlier, space flight. It's a big deal right now. What, what SpaceX just achieved uh, for the first time to, to launch a commercially manned spacecraft into space after you guys did it at scale. Huge deal. Uh, huge. A little a little different way of doing it, but they did but it. But awesome. Totally big awesome. Deal. Huge deal. And that inspired a lot of kids, including Young Eagles and other kids at EA. What advice would you have to them? on how to really make it to where you are or anybody else that's had a very successful go with this? Uh, I think the first thing is that um, it's all attainable, but man, that's everybody says that. I think that it's attainable in the sense that everybody that you're looking out there at that is blowing you away has needs. And there's some on that list of needs that they have, there's a something that you could do. Right. And with the power of the Internet and you know, Instagram direct message and LinkedIn direct message or you know, picking up the phone call, showing up, you know, just fly yourself out there, sit on the doorstep until they talk to you. These people have problems that you can solve and you can lower your rate until it, you, they can't say no. Right. Um, the. Uh, the opportunities are amazing. Right. Um, the st- the vertical takeoff stuff that's happening in the Bay area, the stuff in Denver with boom, uh, obviously SpaceX. Um, it's a crazy big world out there. And I I think beyond the fact that you can do it, don't get too caught up on finding the perfect target. Just recognize that you are within 30 degrees of the right heading and you, what you need to be doing right now is running. Right. So, you know, maybe you can't get SpaceX, but you know, yeah, that's the, place down the street is available and that'll put you in LA, you know, three doors down from Musk's shop. Hey, that's better. Let's do that. Right. Uh, and keep pushing. Cause, um, the, the timer's still running, even though everybody's got coronavirus, the timer's still running. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you got to get it done sometimes. So. Exactly. That, 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 that was great. That was awesome. Okay. So, so what's next for Elliot? What's next for Wasabi? What's going on? What, what is the next thing on your horizon that we might not know about if you want to talk about it? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, uh, the, the same thing that we started out this whole meeting with talking about is how do you make um, these skills, these EAA skills, the skills that Dave Bro and Burl Fife taught me back in you know Mason, Michigan, how do you make those uh, profitable in a way that allows me to provide for my family and you know, have a roof over my head and something to eat for dinner? Um, and that's, that's always the question. Uh, on the other side of that, I chose to go down flight test, right? So I got to compete with these guys that have you know, millions of dollars of training that I don't have. The thing that I know that I have that they don't have is the, uh, the EAA thing, right? We've, we've done this. We've all been in the hangar in the middle of the night trying to figure out how to rivet, right? And we got to fly tomorrow, you know, whatever the deal is, right? And that, I believe, separates us. And I think uh, that's where this mission or, you know, the EAA mission lines up very well with mine is that I, I feel like this is unusual skill set. And I feel like... Uh, just like the AARs, I think it's valuable. I think it's something that the world needs. I think in this time of this next generation of flight tests that's happening as we generate these next next generation of vehicles, 
we can add, we EAAers can add value in a way that the military trained guys can't and the, you know, the, the big school guys can't and the guys that just, you know, work to the big companies can't. And so it's up to us both for ourselves and for each other to, to tell that story. Right. So, uh, I'm trying to do a better job of telling the story of what the services that Wasabi provides are, uh, in a way that's palatable and, uh, and, and, and can be understood both so that guys that are coming up can, you know, save their bacon uh, and apply it to what they're doing and also to show it to potential customers so that we can get that work going forward. Um, this is a, a hard uh, test flying is a hard business. There's no rating for flight test in the U S so there's no moat around the business. Anytime I go out for a gig, I'm competing with every other commercial pilot or per, per, uh, private pilot on the airport. As a result, like I'm pedaling hard, me and my business partner, Justin, we're pedaling hard constantly to try to keep ourselves ahead of it, uh, to try to stay um, as valuable as we can and provide as much service as possible to the next program. And it's a nonstop fight. So um, we have a lot of cool projects going around right now. There's some stuff I was hoping to be able to tell you guys about uh, in the last week or so, but unfortunately it hasn't kicked off yet, but lots of cool stuff coming. Stay tuned, but um, it's all awesome. It's a big world out there. There's a lot of good stuff coming for all of us. So. So we only have a couple minutes left, Elliot. Let's let's end on a seemingly easy question, but it's hard for uh, all of us. What's your favorite airplane? My favorite airplane. Heck yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, the HE-162. Why the HE-162? Because, right? So here we are, right? It's, uh, you know, late World War II. We're British. Uh, we got a Spitfire sitting behind us. It's early in the morning. Over the horizon comes this terrifying scream of an aircraft, right? And we're going to jump in our Spitfire, and we're going to put the mighty might of the British Air Force up against this threat on the horizon, right? The threat coming over the horizon, this HE-162, it's built out of cardboard, right? It's built out of non – I believe the definition was non-strategic materials. Germany was in a tough spot. They didn't have labor. They didn't have anything. So they built this thing out of plywood and stuff that was laying around. They strapped this you know, old – or this uh, – low tech, relatively low tech turbine on the top, right? And the whole thing was how fast can we make these? How fast can we put up something, right? You know, the, the simplest solution to solve the problem. Boy, if that doesn't sound like an EAA or to me, right? That's, that's a long easy with a jet motor on the top of it. And that gets me really excited, right? You think of the effort that went into developing not only the, the Spitfire in this case, but also the Merlin up front. Like this is an engineering monster, right? And then over the horizon comes this little, let's say composite. Let's say it's a you know a honey and bed sheets uh, fiberglass long easy with the t- with a jet motor on the top of it. That gets me really excited, independent of all the politics involved. So that's my favorite. That is one. that is awesome, Elliot. This has been a <laughs> tremendous segment. Thank you so much for joining us. Looking forward to chatting soon. And again, thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you, Kyle. I really appreciate it being here. Hey, no problem. For more content like this, stay tuned to eatogether.org. Thanks for watching, guys. Appreciate it. Like Kyle said, thank you all for listening, and you can still check out plenty of the Spirit of Aviation Week content like this interview over at eaatogether.org. You can also head to inspire.eaa.org to see individual blog posts for each episode of this podcast, or check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. And speaking of those great podcast platforms, be sure to rate and review The Green Dot if you enjoyed this or any episode. That all said... We look forward to catching up with you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot.